0: We thank you, Lord, so much for today, a day that we could gather with the body of Christ, Lord, to worship you and to lift you up. Father, thank you that no matter what we go through, the storms and trials or the many blessings that you bring into our lives, Lord, we will praise you because it is well. The situation may not be well. The circumstance may not be joyful in the sense of what we're going through But we don't find joy in the circumstance. We find joy in the one that holds us through those things, in the one that keeps us by his grace. We find our joy in the the results of what's produced through these trials, which is a, a deeper patience, a greater endurance, a longing to be more with you, Lord. And so, Father, in all these things, we thank you that we can trust in you, lean into who you are by your word, and, Father, find great joy as we learned about this morning. Thank you for tonight. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in all that is said and done. Help us to grow in your word and in the appreciation of what we're going to be looking at tonight, Lord, and what you've done through the gospel. And, Father, thank you again for your great love for us. And in all of this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys may be seated. So I do want to start with a couple announcements per normal. So as these guys are grabbing a seat and babies are being handed off, Yeah, <laughs> she she might give it to you. Actually, I don't know. She might give them to you tonight. I don't know. Actually, the toddler might go first. But uh, just saying. Yeah, TJ's like uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. All right, a couple of announcements. Uh, just obviously keep in mind, uh, Word of Life Carnival is coming up. I know we've been talking about this uh, this morning, uh, but really be letting people know about that. That's a great uh, first-time event for people to come to, for kids uh, to come out and check out. So Word of Life Carnival is going on September 6th. Uh, excited to be a part of that. Um, also, don't forget about registrations going on. Um, we also have uh, Ladies Bible Study starting up. Uh, men's Bible study. We're hoping to begin announcing next week. Um, as I mentioned on Wednesday, there's a couple studies that I'm kind of going back and forth between. i um, not quite sure yet which one we're going to do. So hopefully by next week, um, I'll have a better idea of that. So we'll be announcing that. Um, but those will be starting up the end of September. As you notice in your bullets in there, uh, the dates got omitted uh, accidentally. And so uh, those are starting up at the end of September, I believe the last week of, De- of September. Um, Tuesday and Thursday, those are going on. Men's study will be Thursday nights uh, at the same time the evening or the ladies' study is going on there in the evening. So uh, also story time with Masavi is coming up on August 27th. Don't forget Tammy in our children's ministry. So kickoff is September 9th. September 9th. And what time is that, Greg? Seven. Okay, seven o'clock here at the church for the student. Uh, or teen kickoff, for school year kickoff. So don't forget about that. Um, but we are going to jump right in. Unless there's any questions, or comments. Can jump right in. We have our uh, handout this evening. Um, we're taking a little bit of a break, at least for tonight, from Psalm, uh, Psalms rather. Um, we've been doing quite a few Psalm studies, and so uh, tonight we're going to transition into Ephesians, and so. Uh, if you're with us for the first time, obviously, or not been here in a while, what we do is we're going to give you guys a passage. Uh, we print it out, uh, then we're going to give you some time to kind of work through the passage, make some observations, make some notes on the paper itself, um, kind of look at what the passage is dealing with, talking about, and then we'll kind of break it apart together. So we're just going to walk through uh, Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. So if I can get a couple volunteers that would like to hand out the handouts, uh, Anthony and Keith, great. Uh, you need a clipboard. So if you need a clipboard, let us know. Anyone need a clipboard to write on? All right, a couple clipboards there. So he's got the handout. Sorry, he took them and ran. So uh, pens, does anyone need a pen? We have pens, pens, anyone pens? She doesn't need one, Anthony. Yeah. Also... Um, as we've done before, if you would prefer a digital copy of the handout, um, I know we've got a couple of people that use their iPads, and they just kind of write right on there. If you'd prefer that, if you let me know, um, I'll try to remember. I don't always remember, but I'll try to remember to send you a copy of the passage we'll be looking at that Sunday night. So anyone else need a clipboard or a handout? Okay. All set? Did you get, a, did you get him a handout? It's his clipboard. There's more in the back sound booth if you need one, Anthony. Did you have a hand up for yourself? Yeah. Okay. All right. So as we've been doing now for, we kind of did this last summer for quite a few weeks um, into the fall, started doing this again this last, this summer into uh, at least up until the next couple of weeks. Um, as I said before, we really don't have a timetable on this. I'm not sure how many more of these we'll do, um, but I, I really love the idea of just diving into a passage and breaking it apart and doing that together. Um, But again, remember, we're doing this so that in your own personal study time, you're kind of learning some real basic ways to take a passage of Scripture and begin to kind of break it apart, okay? So if it helps you, print it out. Put it on a device where you can kind of have it printed out in front of you or on the screen in front of you, rather, um, so you can kind of make some observations. And so what we're looking for is conversations, locations, uh, people groups, who's talking to who, um, any kind of references to other passages of scripture that you might note or make a note of. Um, obviously, we're going to break this apart again together. Uh, but what we really want to do is just kind of dive apart or break apart this text and then dive into it together. All right, so Ephesians 3, 1 through 13 is a passage. So I'm going to give you guys probably about 10 minutes like normal. Um, there'll be a little bit of music playing, so we'll give you about 10 minutes to just make some observations. Also, if you see kind of a, the text break up into sections, Maybe you might say, okay, these verses kind of go together. These verses might go together. Just that's kind of also what we're doing right now. We're just making observations about the text so that the next step we're going to do is we're going to talk about what does the text mean or what is another way of saying that? When I say what the text means, what am I doing there with the, with the text or the passage? There's a word we gave you guys that we're doing that when we try to figure out what it means. Interpret, right? So interpretation deals with what does the text mean? observation is kind of what is the text saying what's going on right what's the setting who's the people receiving it who's writing to who and then application is that last step where we take what we've learned from the observations and what it means and now we apply it to ourselves how do I now live this out or how do what what I just reread how does that apply to my life moving forward so that's what we're doing tonight we're going to make some observations we'll talk about what does it mean And then obviously we pray the Lord to give us wisdom in application. All right? So give you guys 10 minutes. Go ahead and start making some notes, some observations, and we'll come back in just a moment. Okay, so we will dive into the passage. A couple of things we want to start off with. Um, Somewhere near the top, off to the side, you can jot this down. Um, We're going to talk about the author of this uh, passage, which we know is is who? Paul, right? So we'll dive into him in just a moment. Um, Who's receiving this letter? the church at Ephesus, right? So believers are receiving this. And again, that's a very important observation, um, because it does change how we interpret the passage. Uh, if he's writing this to believers, then it affects how we understand what he means when he says the things he says. A good example of that, actually brother C did that this morning. He went to first John, right? Chapter one. And he referenced where, if we say we have no sin, we make God a liar that if we, you know, we, we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that was written to believers. That was written to the church. And so that's hugely important because some people will use that verse to try to talk about the fact that, well, we can either lose our salvation or we you know, need to talk about that in a sense of... Um, Only in the gospel, sharing the gospel, but that's talking to believers, that believers need to confess their sins as well as when we receive Christ, but also as we live for Christ. And so, again, that's important to understand that that was written to a church that was written to believers. And so, here it's important to understand that because we're going to talk about why that matters in a little bit. So, we know the author, we know the audience, the date when this was written was right where, right about rather 60 to 63 AD. So, 60 to 63 AD. And so we're moving along in the timeline. Obviously, the gospel's spreading, and God is doing great things. One of the reasons why I wanted to dive into Ephesians tonight was because Wednesday night we started a film. Um, we've been studying the seven churches of Revelation, and so we finished up the seven churches. And uh, a ministry put out a—I um, would call it like a documentary kind of on those seven churches and kind of on location today. What does that area look like? What's going on in the world today in those areas? And so we started that. Well, obviously, in the video Wednesday night, we talked about the church of Ephesus. And in the video, we talked about some great things that are recorded or the things that are recorded for us in Ephesians and drew my attention there this week. And that's kind of why we're stepping from Psalms into Ephesians. Um, again, something to note here, the book of Ephesians. What do you think of when you think of the book of Ephesians? What comes to mind if I just said the book of Ephesians? What usually comes to mind, even beyond the passage that we study tonight? What comes to your mind? What comes to your mind when I say the book of Ephesians? Grace, Grace right? What's one of the more famous verses in Ephesians? Mm-hmm. Ephesians 2 8 and 9, right? Not by works. Why is that so important? Because we can't boast. If it was in works that we did, we could boast when we get to heaven. And I did more than he did, or she did more than they did, or or whatever it might be. But it's all by grace. We can't boast in anything, but as Paul says, we boast in Christ. And so grace is a huge part of Ephesians. And so in the book of Ephesians, he kind of splits the book into two halves. The first part of Ephesians deals with grace unto salvation. That doctrinal truth that we are saved by grace through faith. The other half of the book, or not really half, but the other part of the book, deals with the practical Christian living. Some very practical tips and and, and encouragements are in the book of Ephesians, obviously dealing with marriage, dealing with children and parents and all those areas of life. The problem is if we disconnect the encouragements at the end of the letter from the grace revealed in the beginning of the letter, we end up with a works-based Christianity, a performance-driven Christianity. We have to keep them Connected, and I love that Paul does that even in our passage by trying trying to draw this line all the way through the writing. All right, so let's dive in to that first few verses there. So, so chapter three and verse one says, "For this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles." And we're just going to read that one verse right now because in that there's a lot. There's a lot in that one verse. So the first thing we have to notice here, the author is identified, right? Paul saying, I, Paul, I'm the one writing to you, but he's not just writing to them. He is an apostle to the Gentiles. And so as I was trying to think of a way to kind of summarize this passage, that was kind of what I put down on my paper there, Paul, an apostle to the Gentiles. Now, did he only minister to Gentiles? No, Paul ministered to Jews as well. And in fact, what was one of the first things Paul would do when he arrived in a new city or a new area? What was one of the first things Paul did when he came into a new area? Yeah, he went to a synagogue. In Ephesians, or rather in Ephesus, he debated them for months. He went to the synagogue, Sabbath after Sabbath, to talk to them, to debate with them. What was the purpose of that? To persuade them that Jesus is the Messiah. And that's amazing to me because it shows a couple things. One, sharing the gospel and leading people and others to Christ takes time. It's not going to be you share your faith and they fall down and get saved every time. Sometimes there's long conversations. There's a form of convincing of some truths. Now, don't get it wrong. We don't do the saving by how well we debate or convince or persuade. That's not what Paul believed. So Paul's not persuading because he's the one converting them. No, he's just laying out a clear and effective way of understanding the gospel so that they might come to know Christ. The Holy Spirit of God does the converting, does the drawing into repentance. It's all God's work. We merely are tools or vessels that he uses to communicate those things. And so Paul is an apostle to the Gentiles. He's sent to the Gentiles. And in this introduction, he kind of introduces himself himself in this way. Paul gives himself the title, Prisoner of Jesus Christ. So if you didn't mark that, I would definitely mark that, underline that, circle that, Prisoner of Jesus Christ. And this imprisonment that he refers to here in Christ is a voluntary imprisonment. He, he joyfully and willfully takes that label. He wears that label with honor and proudly he displays, I am a prisoner of Christ. Not because it's all about him, but because he is saying, all that Christ has done for me, I will joyfully be in bondage to Christ. I'm a bond servant of Jesus Christ. There's another way to say that. Now, according to historical record, he is actually not only spiritually a prisoner of Christ, he is literally a prisoner for Christ. But we're going to come back to that at the end of the passage because he speaks about that to the church. But here we see this idea, he says, I'm imprisoned for Christ. I'm a bond servant of Christ. Now, some of you may have studied this out before, but in this timeline, somebody would be kind of in service to someone to pay off a debt. And when that debt is fulfilled, that person can choose to then continue to work for that person that they were indebted to, not out of obligation or force, but choice. And what Paul is saying here is saying, I joyfully, I choose of my own freedom to be a servant of Christ, a bond servant of Christ. I love James, the half-brother of Jesus, when he writes his epistle. He doesn't refer to himself in his position of who he is to Christ as far as a family member. He says, know what? I'm a servant of Christ. When you read the New Testament, you find time and again, those that were used by God to do amazing things were humbly submitted to Christ and said, I claim no title, I claim no position of authority other than I just want to be a servant of Christ. I just want to serve Christ because if Christ did all for me that I needed so that I might have eternal life with the father in heaven forever, then the least I can do is be Romans 12, one a living sacrifice. What does it mean to be a living sacrifice? I joyfully surrender my life to Christ for his will, for his purpose. And Paul's saying, that's what I'm choosing. I want to be imprisoned for Christ. Now, again, he actually finds himself in literal prison which many of our brothers and sisters all over the world are experiencing, not only 2,000 years ago when Paul was writing this, but even today. So also we need to note that verse 1 begins in an interesting way. So we understand that he's the author. Paul's this apostle to the Gentiles. He's a prisoner of Christ, again, that bondservant of Christ. But he says, for this cause. Now there's a couple different ideas here probably if you want to break it apart. But when you read that, what do you think Paul's... Meaning when he says for this cause, for this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, remember it ends in a comma. So he's going to keep talking after this, but why do you think he starts this chapter or this part of the letter this way for this cause? Did you guys, did anyone note that that's how it begins? Kind of, did you circle cause and kind of maybe wonder why is he saying that? Did Anybody note that? Okay, so when you read it, you mean it as for this cause, and he's going to tell us what the cause is. Okay, That's, what's the other way we can look at this? Yeah, so it's either for this cause, what I'm going to tell you, or for this cause, what I just told you, right? And so I want to kind of take it from the, the perspective of what he just told them. Because to me, it kind of seems to make sense based on studying this out. He's building something right? Everything is building on the previous point or the previous teaching. And so for this cause, I believe he's referring to what he just explained to them in chapter two. Now, when we're doing interpretation, there's a very important word that we have to keep in the forefront of our mind. Okay. And that word is context. When you're interpreting scripture, we have to keep the scripture in context, meaning what's before and what's after affects what I'm reading. We can't just Rip a verse out. Remember I said this before when we talked about um, the principles in Proverbs, right? There's wisdom principles in Proverbs, but those are not promises. So many people have taken wisdom principles and said, this is a promise of God. And then they apply it wrongly to their lives. And then they're left discouraged, disappointment, and angry with God because God didn't do what he said he was going to do or promised he was going to do. But it wasn't a promise. It was a proverb, So when we talk about a law passage, we have to understand this is law. We interpret it as a law passage. If this is a promise, and it is a promise passage, we interpret it as a promise. But a key thing we have to ask ourselves in context is, who's the promise to? That matters, right? That matters who God is speaking to. So here, in context, we can go back and we can look at chapter 1 and chapter 2. We're not going to read it for time's sake right now. But I do want to look at the end of chapter 2. 2. Maybe if I can get a volunteer, maybe we'll start, let's see, verse 17. Maybe a volunteer would like to read chapter 2 of Ephesians 17 through 22. If somebody has that readily available, would like to read that for us. I'd appreciate that. Anyone got that? Ephesians 2, 17 through 22. Jeff? Oh, I saw, Jeff, go ahead. I'll let you do that. Fitly. Thank you sir. So so that's that's the church, right? He's building this holy temple. He's building this structure and all these pieces are fitting together. And what is the foundation of this building that God is building? Well, first he says, what's, what's part of the foundation? The prophets and the apostles. But what's the chief cornerstone of that foundation? It's Jesus Christ. Remember when, when Jesus said to the disciples, who do you say that I am? He said, who do the men say that I am? Who do others say that I am? And they listed off all these different ideas, pop culture opinions, right? Common things that people were saying. And he stops them. I love this passage because he doesn't refute any of the things they said. He doesn't even take time. He doesn't go down the list of why he's not Elijah or why he's not John the Baptist reincarnated or any of that. He completely kind of just pushes it off to the side and says, okay, who do you, my disciples that have walked with me, had meals with me, you've seen me do these miracles, who do you say that I am? See, they, they don't know. They're, they're not really aware of who I fully am, but you should know who I am. So who am I? And he points that to them. He says, who do you say that I am? And then Peter, with his famous confession, and we're going to talk about it a little bit as well, says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, you're right, Peter, right? He affirms his words. He says, upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, so many, especially our brothers and sisters that are saved, that are part of the Catholic church, they have misunderstood that to mean that Peter is the rock, That the church is built upon in a line of popes. That is not what Jesus was teaching. What Jesus was saying is, Peter, you're a small stone in this large foundation. You're an apostle, part of this foundation. But the foundation is built upon what you just said. Your confession that Christ is the son of the living God. That profession and confession is what the foundation of the church is built upon. So when Paul's writing this to the church at Ephesus, a church made up of Jews and Gentiles, and if you were with us on Wednesday night, they broke this all apart, talking about the the pagan kind of nature of Ephesus and all the different people groups and religions and all this coming together in this port city. And as he's writing this to them, he wants to understand something. God is taking all of you and your uniqueness and your backgrounds and your differences, and he's through Christ building this church and he's fitting it all together perfectly. Everything has a position. Everyone has a piece, a part of the church, and he's building this case. And then he says in chapter three, verse one, for this cause, I'm writing this to you. What cause? I'm explaining to you how Christ does what I just told you in chapter two. And so again, we're going to unpack that, but that's kind of the idea here. That he is building on the teachings from chapter 1 and chapter 2. Which makes it clear that all believers, Jews and Gentiles, are being fitted together as the body of Christ. This is not true just for the church of Ephesus. This is true for the church. All who would confess Christ. Every tribe, language, people group. If they're in Christ, they're part of the body of Christ. So this is altogether different than the Old Testament Jews would think. To an Old Testament Jewish person, they did not see Gentiles as equal to them before God. They are not as good as us. Even the process of getting them kind of brought into the Jewish faith still didn't make them equal with God. If you were a Gentile that converted to Judaism, you were one step better than a Gentile, but you're not quite a Jew. And we see this even in the book of Acts. This kind of unfolding of that gospel going forth. And so again... There's this understanding among the Jews that you are not quite as good as us before God. But Paul's going to completely change that whole thinking and remind them that that these Gentiles, these non-Jews in Christ, are on equal footing with you before God. This is completely changing their opinion of how this takes place in the gospel. So again, that's the beauty and the mystery of the gospel. It unites all peoples under equal grace and a common salvation. It unites all peoples in equal grace. Why do I say equal grace? Because we all equally need it. And it's a common salvation. Why? Because we're all saved by that grace brought into the family of God, the church of God. And we all have equal standing with God. There are no second-class citizens in his kingdom. And so again, it unites all peoples under equal grace and a common salvation. So verses 2 through 7, this is kind of the next, I'm not sure how you broke it up, but for me, I kind of broke it up as 2 through 7, and then 8 through 12, and then the last verses there, verse 13. So that's just kind of how we're going to walk the passage out this evening. So verses 2 through 7, we see that he begins to expound on the mystery of Christ. He's expounding on the mystery of Christ. And I can guarantee you being 648, we probably won't get through the passage tonight. But that's okay. So can I get a volunteer that would like to read verses 2 through 7 for us? Right off the paper is fine. Verses 2 through 7. Danielle, awesome. 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 Thank you, ma'am. So again, we see how, what's he doing here? He's expounding on what he just talked about in chapter two, right? Yes, ma'am. Oh, unites all peoples under equal grace and a common salvation. Unites all peoples under equal grace and a common salvation. So here we see he's expounding on that. He's building on this case. And he's going to talk about different aspects of this. But a lot of things jump out to us here that we kind of need to pause and think on. The first thing that Paul says there is he talks about this idea of the dispensation of grace. Or the dispensation of the grace of God. So does, what does that word dispensation mean? If you've studied this or you've looked into this, what is that? How would you describe what that word is referring to? The dispensation of grace. Sandra. Well, just, yeah, yeah. Okay, absolutely. A period of time. Great. Yeah. And how God dealt with men during that period of time. Okay. Any other thoughts on that? Now, there is a whole end times view, right? That would be called dispensational ism. Because in theology, everything has to to have an ISM on the end. It just does. It's just ism everything. Everything's ism. Something is ism. But that's not the only end times view, but it is a a view that our church holds to this idea that God works with mankind or deals with mankind in certain ways at certain times. Okay, that's the basic idea here. Now, when Paul says this, when he says the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you word. So this grace was given to Paul for what purpose? So that Paul could deliver it to the church, to the Gentiles, to those that need their grace. Now, this really is just referring to a unique way God interacts with mankind. Some way that God is choosing to interact with mankind for a period of time. Now, we need to remember a couple of things here. Number one, God never changes, right? Same God, yesterday, today, and forever. So, God does not change. However, how God interacts with mankind has changed and will change throughout human history and in the future. However, the same key principles remain. Okay? So this is important. Some people that, that hold different views than the uh, idea of dispensationalism would say, well, you're claiming that God changes, right? And, and he changes how he saves. He changes how he interacts with mankind. He changes how he is, his character, how people come to faith, all those things. And it's true that God changes how he interacts with mankind, but the truth is that god there are some things about God and his character, obviously, that never change. And the key principles never change. When Old Testament saints were, quote-unquote, saved, and I'll use that term because we understand that term in the New Testament, they were not saved by works. David was not saved by works. Abraham was not saved by works. In fact, Romans builds a whole case for this, Romans 4. Abraham wasn't saved, justified by works. He was justified by faith. So what is it then that, why do we do this? Because we think, oh, they were under the law. They had to keep the law. Nobody has ever kept the law. That's, remember Peter's point in Acts 15? They want to put these Gentiles under the law and conform them to the law. And Peter sends them and says, our fathers never kept the law. You can't keep the law. I can't keep the law. So David, Abraham... Any prophet, they weren't saved by works. They were saved or kept in God by faith and grace. That's always how God saves. Now, the object of that faith and the amount of revelation they had about that thing changes. So when when God told Adam and Eve after Genesis 3 and showed them how to sacrifice and they duplicated those sacrifices... They were doing the work of these sacrifices, but why were the sacrifices doing anything for their sin? Not because that animal could somehow pardon them, because they put faith in the word of God, that God said that he will forgive us of our sin, and so we're trusting in that, and that's grace. So the object changes, but it's always faith and grace. Now, what's the object of our salvation? Where do we place our faith as New Testament believers? In Jesus Christ, the sacrifice. So why is it that Jesus Christ can cover our sin and forgive us of our sin? Because we confess him as our Lord and Savior. Because by faith, we're believing the word of God. What was the problem with Adam and Eve in the garden? The problem is not that they ate a piece of fruit. That was just the consequence of a sinful choice. That was the, the product or the, what was produced by a sinful decision was eating the fruit. The problem is that when you read Genesis 3, when Eve exchanged the word of God for the word of the serpent. And the minute she said, I want to eat that because it will make me wise. That was what Satan told her, not what God told her. Or rather what God told Adam to tell her. And the minute she believed the word of the serpent over the word of God, that's when sin took root in her heart. That's when sin entered in. And as a result of that, she ate of the fruit and gave to her husband. Thanks, Eve. Appreciate that. By the way, Adam's held accountable for that, not Eve. But anyway, but that's the idea, right? That that idea of exchanging the word of God. So again, it's by faith through grace. So while Paul says, I'm going to reveal to you this way that God is interacting with mankind called the grace of God, this time of grace, grace didn't start in the New Testament, right? Why was Noah allowed to enter the ark with his sons and their wives? Because Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Not because Noah was perfect, not because Noah was sinless and never made a mistake, but he trusted and put his faith in God. Now, limited knowledge, right? We have the word of God revealed to us cover to cover. We have so much revelation The early church fathers would have loved to have, not just fathers, the early um, Christians and believers would have loved to have what we have now. The church fathers built upon what the apostles laid forth. And that generation had a little more and a little more. And now we have volumes upon volumes of writings. Libraries filled, not just with God's word, but God's so many individuals that God has used to take his word and, and communicate in an effective way. And we are so blessed with so much knowledge and, and wisdom given to us. And so we can understand to a different degree what Abraham and, and David and some of them understood. There was more limits on their revelation, but it was still faith and grace that never changes. So when he says here a dispensation of the grace of God, what he's referring to here is this idea that God has given grace Evident grace through the gospel that others might come to know that grace and be forgiven of their sins. And so this is the full and powerful gospel of Christ. That all can be saved by grace through faith in Christ. Doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. And we already alluded to this. Paul is merely building on... Now that grace would even be unfamiliar to the Gentiles. We think about the Jews and the law. But think about a Gentile who's used to these pagan practices this grace would be completely new to them as well. In these pagan practices, how do they find forgiveness or eternal life? Through sacrifices, through festivals and feasts, right? Through some pretty wicked things that they would partake in. But it's the same idea. I got to do these things and, and, and surrender these things. And in some cases, it even involved human sacrifice. But why were they doing that? When you hear these horrible things that these people groups did to each other and sacrificing each other and children and all this other nonsense. Why were they doing that? Because they believed if I do this, my God will forgive me. Why is it that people strap bombs to their chest and get on a bus and try to kill as many people as they can as an act of suicide, a suicide bomber? Why do they do that? Because they've been taught if I die in this way during a holy war, I'm granted eternal life, forgiveness of sin, complete. And so these pagans, they've been living their lives trying to earn forgiveness, trying to earn eternal life to their understanding, euphoria, whatever they might call it. And they've been doing all these things, these works. And Paul steps into that and says, no, 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 no. It's grace. By grace, you can be saved. And God will forgive you of your sins. Again, the Ephesian church is full of individuals coming out of a religious system of works, sacrifices, feasts, And offerings that supposedly would grant them favor with their gods. In the gospel we are all, his words, fellow heirs in Christ. And the blessing of his righteousness has been granted to us. We are made righteous in Christ. Notice that he says in the passage we read in verse 6. That we are partakers of the promise in Christ. It is not the promise of Christ. But in Christ. So what is that promise, according to the context? That through the gospel, we are placed in the body of Christ. We are made one with Christ. We're no longer on the outside looking in. We're in Christ. We're submerged in Christ. That's why I love the Bible says that we've been baptized by the Spirit into Christ or into the body of Christ. That word baptized means to submerge, to plunge into And Paul says, we've been given that promise in Christ. It's amazing what we have and what we've been given. And again, this is merely Ephesians 1 expounded again, that we are kept in him and for his glory. The author of Hebrews says that many waited for that promise, but never saw it. We have experienced that very fulfillment in and through Christ. That we are in Christ. What did he pray? What did Christ pray in John 17? I pray that they would be one with each other and with me. Like you, Father, you and I are one. And that's being and has been and continues to be fulfilled. That prayer has been answered. That every single human being who trusts and put their faith and trust in Christ and are forgiven of their sins are not just forgiven and granted eternal life. They're placed into Christ. Kept in his very hand. And so, what a blessing that you and I have in the gospel. And here's the reality nobody anywhere on planet earth is unable to experience this promise. Every person who trusts in Christ, no matter their background, what they've done, where they've been, can be saved if they would repent of their sins and trust in Christ. So, here's the application because I know we got to wrap it up. Here's the application. How do you view the people in your life? People that you work with or people in your community. Do you automatically make the assumption that some can and some can't? Some are in and some aren't. Well, I like these people, but I don't like those people. And so I don't really think they can be saved. I don't really want to be in in a church, quote unquote, with them. But these guys are okay. I like these people. And again, that's not... In this text, this says that we all, now it's talking about Jews and Gentiles, but it's referred to all of humanity. We have no room for prejudice in the body of Christ. There's no room for me to say some other people group isn't as good or aren't as good as me or them. There should be no division like that in the body of Christ. We are all, again, equally sinful, equally in need of grace, in Christ, equally saved. And granted, fellow heirs, we're all standing as fellow heirs with Christ. And one day we'll leave this place and we'll see the full reward of what it means to be in Christ. And what does John tell us? We will see him and we will be like him, not in divinity, not like God in that regard, but we'll be like him in the sense of we'll be fully in him, fully understanding what we need to understand, fully aware of the, I believe, fully aware of the grace that was given to us, I've I've always believed this, that we'll never really understand the grace that was given to us until we see him. Because I think in that moment, we'll fully be aware of the sin that was required to pay, or the grace that was required to pay for our sin. I think in that moment, we'll finally understand that's what it took to forgive me. And I think that's why when you see people get in the presence of God in scripture, even in a vision, there's instant humility, instant repentance, awareness of their sin, and a begging and pleading for grace. Grace. And I believe we would experience that as well when we see him one day. So, just an encouragement. How are you seeing other people in your community? Are you allowing prejudice or thoughts of thinking this person or this people group isn't as good? Or maybe it's the same people group as you, but for whatever reason, maybe the sin they commit or the things they're doing, you just think, well, I don't, I don't really think they can be saved. Then I would encourage you to be praying for those individuals that you have a hard time praying for. I just had lunch this last week with an individual and we were talking about some things. And, and he even said, he said, you know, I know I shouldn't think this, but when I hear of people who commit this sin, this specific sin against children, man, it's really hard for me, my blood not to boil. And I started thinking, man, could they really be forgiven? Could they really be saved? I mean, could, how can you forgive someone for something like that? And I get what he's saying. He even said, now that's in the flesh. I know that's not how I should think, but here's the reality. That's how all sin is before a holy God. If our good works are filthy rags, what are our sins before a holy God? And so that blood-boiling anger that you feel when you hear about a certain sin committed just turns your stomach. That's every sin before our God. And yet he says, in Christ, you're forgiven. And not only forgiven, now I'm going to use you for my glory. And so again, how we think about other people matters. How we pray for other people matters. How we think about the gospel going forth. Do we really believe that that God has a desire to redeem all of mankind, out of every tribe, language, and tongue. And how are we a part of that? Are we praying for that in our own community? So I just want to encourage you guys that tonight. Again, what a beautiful passage to see how we are all one in Christ. Sandra. So it's kind of crazy that you like this passage, but on Wednesday, we just, with the kids, we just did Acts 10 mm-hmm. a one. If one the yes. Mm-hmm. And that, that man's, I think it a Roman? Like Cornelius. Italian. Yeah. yeah. That, that man's, him and his family came to, um, to that day. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing because even Peter, who seemed to grow quite a bit from, you know, with Christ at the crucifixion and then following that when he tells him to feed my sheep and feed my lambs. And then we see him on the day of Pentecost. And Peter's pretty much the main character of the book of Acts up until the Apostle Paul. He's the one that's doing so much for Christ. And yet even Peter, all that God used him for, he still had to deal with some prejudice in his life. He still had to deal with some wrong thinking in his life. To the point where God brings down the animals and God says, take eat. And Peter says, what? Well, I can't eat. That's unclean. And God says, don't call unclean what I've called clean. And again, what a picture of that we need to go to all people's to share Christ, the person you like at work and the person you don't like, right? The person that irritates you or the, the, the sinfulness that you see in people. We don't look at that and hold it against them. We can speak truth, but we need to preach Christ. And so again, great example of that as well. Uh, Any other thoughts on that before we dismiss? Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) I was going to say, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. We tend to label people before we ever even give them an opportunity. We just kind of put them in a box and that's what it is. And, God can only do what I think God can do. And that's so far from the truth of the gospel. Any other thoughts on what we've covered tonight before we dismiss in a word of prayer? Comments or thoughts, questions? All right. Well, let's go ahead and pray. And then we'll let you guys be dismissed. Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for tonight. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, I pray that... As we walk through this week ahead, that you would show us the opportunities that are already in our everyday lives to share our faith, to um, communicate the truth of the gospel to someone, to uh, pray for someone or with someone as an opportunity arises. But Lord, also help us to see in our own lives these um, wrong ways of thinking, uh, the way we label people and group people. And, And really, Lord, we would never say it out loud because we know it's not right. But in our minds, we see things or we hear stories about different situations and we make very broad statements about certain people, maybe certain situations. And Lord, I I just pray that we would have this mindset that Paul lays forth that through the gospel, that through the gospel, we are one and that we can come together and encourage each other and worship together, Lord. And I love seeing the community that is in church because Lord, really there should be nothing like brothers and sisters in Christ coming together and encouraging each other and provoking one another into loving good works and praying with each other. Lord, the world should look at the church and be so awestruck by the love that we have for each other, by the unity that is is not uniformity where we're all the same, because that's never going to happen, but a unity that we have a common salvation, a common purpose, a common drive to go forth and make disciples. And so, Lord, in this, I pray that you would help us to grow in this area because, Lord, you tell us that the way in which the world will know that the Father sent you into the world and your love for the world, your desire that they would receive your gospel, is evidenced in the relationship that is going on in the church. That if there's love one among another, And so help us, Lord, to grow in this, not only in the church, but in our everyday lives. And to not label people or disregard people as unsavable. That you obviously would never save someone like that. Because, Lord, when we get to that point, we've become more like the Pharisees and a lot less like Jesus. And so help us, Lord, to be humble, to remember that the grace that you want us to extend to others, you've given to us. That we were unsavory. We were ones that were filthy in our sin. Un... Lord, really no hope. No hope of anything good being produced as was shared this morning. And yet you in your grace, you reached down into the muck and the mire and you pulled us out. You lifted us up. You cleansed us and clothed us in your righteousness. And you put our feet upon the solid rock of Jesus Christ. And you set our hearts towards the purpose and plans of your gospel of your will. So, Lord, again, we thank you for this. Give us wisdom and discernment as we apply this to our lives. Thank you for all that you do. And go with us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.